everyone notices a dirty bathroom, but no one notices a clean one. So, you know, the management that goes into keeping up a bathroom is invisible work, which is the conflict work in this case. But as soon as something happens, we can see it. And now we know we need to do something about it, but only, only when that management hasn't been in place as a practice for some time. And so people don't really have their eyes out for this kind of stuff unless something bad has happened. Don't you just love conflict? I'm Christine Cullingworth, and we had the pleasure of talking with Erica Franken, the instructor for the Proteo course Conflict Management from the Inside Out. She doesn't think conflict is all that bad. Hmm. I really love this conversation. Russell's questions were evocative, and Erica is just so grounded and real. Being someone that is really conflict-averse, I learned a lot. And I hope you will too. Not only being incredibly smart and a constant learner, Erica is a conflict management practitioner with a specialization in inner conflict. She's worked with the vulnerable population of Vancouver's downtown east side, Canada's federal judiciary, and senior leaders. She is regularly asked to speak on matters of authentic communication, emotional resilience, and the inner landscape. Her experience is shared in the classroom at Yorkville University, where she is a full-time professor and conducts formal research on the biopsychosocial nature of conflict to better understand the intersection of consciousness and its expression in the body. As always, we'll play the first module at some point during the conversation, so you can get a feel for it. In Erica's course, you'll learn about the connection of science, health, psychology, and strategy of conflict management that'll change your understanding of and perspective toward conflict and leave you empowered by the end of the course. Expert contributions from thought leaders and industry experts enhance the learning experience. Also, one of the highlights of this course is that Erica weaves a story throughout the entire course of her own personal experience. I'll leave it there. You'll have to listen. So let's get to the fascinating conversation with Erica Franken on the Sound Learning Podcast. It's great to have Erica Franken. She's the author of our conflict management course, She's also a professor and researcher with Yorkville University. Yorkville University is in New Westminster, British Columbia. Erica, on this topic of conflict, from what I've seen, conflict is typically focused on how to manage other people and your relationship with other people. But your focus is specifically on inner conflict Mm -hmm. through your career. Can you talk a little bit more about why inner conflict and why that is of interest to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, when I started my master's in conflict in 2017, um, of course, a lot of the focus of that master's was, you know, how we can be arbitrators or mediators, or a lot of us had a legal practice that the master's would be helpful for. And the first week of the program, I think we watched a video by Brene Brown on vulnerability. And she said something that completely turned me around in my seat learning about conflict. And it was that blame is the discharge of discomfort and pain. And when she said that, I felt this like churn in my stomach, almost thinking like, oh, conflict isn't on the outside. It's on the inside, you know? And so if we think about that example, like blame being the discharge of discomfort and pain, discomfort and pain are sort of inner working conversations. Like, why am I feeling this discomfort? Why am I feeling this pain? And and when we transform it into blame, that becomes an external conversation. But I think to really understand the root, we need to understand the inner engineering that we all carry within us. And 
perhaps it maybe means a conversation externally, and often it does, but to really understand the root of, of conflict, I felt myself in that moment realize that this is an inner conversation, at least first, at least first. Okay, so in your course, you go into a fairly comprehensive description of what is conflict, but in your own words, if someone had to ask you, what is conflict? How would you describe it in a nutshell? Yeah. The difference between expectations and reality. That's it. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, like I know that. we want to make it more complicated, but that's Let's it. Talk a little bit more about, about why that creates conflict and, mm. and explain it a little bit more for the listeners. So why that creates conflict? Well, it's sort of back to your original question, you know, when we think of conflict, we think of it being an external thing, but really it's an internal conversation. And so if we can audit what our expectations are and then look at what reality is and calculate, if we want to make it a math equation, calculate that difference, that's an expression of maybe our disappointment, our projecting, our expectations in a relationship, our misunderstanding of ourselves. So if we expect that we're going to do X and, you know, reality ends up coming up as Y, what's happening within ourselves that's produced such a different ex experience or a response or an outcome? And, and that goes the same as well for, for external relationships. So I, I realize here that it's sort of being framed as a math equation, you know, X minus Y equals, it, it equals that difference. But that really gives us a framework to start with to understand why is this not the way I thought it was going to be? I will try to remember that next time I'm driving behind someone who's going 40 in a 50 zone. <laughs> exactly. Or any other time in life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about perceived conflict? Mm -hmm. Perceived as opposed to anything specific or just perceived conflict? Well, in your course, you talk about real versus perceived conflict. Mm -hmm. And so can you explain, maybe just explain the difference between the two? Mm -hmm. And and yeah, especially perceived conflict. I think people know what real conflict is when mm -hmm. someone comes and has an argument with you, <laughs> or, mm -hmm. you know, um, or it takes a different stance or opposes mm -hmm. you. But what, what about perceived? Perceived is a little bit more like nebulous, I think. Yeah, it more is. More difficult to grasp. Yeah, it is more difficult to grasp. And I love that you said, we. I think we all know what real conflict is, because I don't know if we do. Um, I, I wonder if that actually bleeds into perceived conflict. I don't know. It's really up to it's really up to reality to reveal that. And that's what this question and what this concept is asking us to do more of is to connect in more with objective reality. And so perceived conflict would be the story that's telling us what's going on, the story in our head, the narrative that we have. Um, it might be our beginning to end description of how this conflict went and why there's a problem with X person or why X happened. It would be how we place blame. The real conflict would be that blame is the discharge of discomfort and pain. And so in using that example, we see that the conflict is the discomfort and pain. And as we start to drill down, we realize, and this is why I have such a passion for inner conflict, we realize that the real conflict oftentimes, and I don't want to say all the time because nothing's a blanket statement here, but the real conflict is often within ourselves. 
Um, Jervis Bush, who I mentioned a lot actually in the course, uh, does some excellent work on organizational development and design. And he has, and I hope I'm not misquoting, some staggering statistic like uh, 80%, I think at least, of conflicts that are um, prevalent in the workplace are actually perceived. I think it's 80%. I'd have to go back and verify, but it's something really high. And so, and he found this through doing tons of work and research with organizations to really understand, you know, what is that difference between reality and expectations? And through facilitating meaningful, intentional conversations, it was understood by the people who thought they were in a quote unquote real conflict that it was only a perceived one. And that perception came through their lens of reality. There's a lot to go into around how we arrive at that lens of reality. I think of it, I tell my students, I think of it like an Instagram filter. You know, when we take a picture with our phone, we have an image of what our phone saw. It's our original photo. And then when we go to post it on Instagram, we're prompted with options to choose a filter. And there's all these options and each filter makes the picture look a little bit different, but the picture remains the picture and it's the filter that changes it. And so we all have that filter, which makes our experience of reality unique to our narrative. Uh, and, and that's really where this conversation of inner conflict can help us narrow down going back to that original photo. I mean, it's such a fascinating topic. Your perception could actually be correct or it could be very incorrect. So let's talk a bit about perception and why it's so important. And what have you learned through your career? And even since you completed your course for us for Prodeo, what have you learned about perception? Oh, and, and if you can talk about the ladder of perception or, or mm -hmm. ladder of inference and how it can get into a loop, mm -hmm. because you know, mm -hmm. it can loop in itself. I think you talk about that in the course too. Yeah, for people who are familiar, and I think many are with the concept of confirmation bias, it works really well in that in that concept. So the ladder of inference, you can if you're a visual person, you can visualize this ladder and you can see it sort of going in front of your body, sort of up and down your body. And, and if you can imagine the lower end of the ladder being your subconscious, you can think of that ladder as the, when I show it to my students, I, I put it on the board and I do all these dots at the bottom of the ladder. Some of the dots are inside the ladder and some are outside the ladder. And I do that because I want them to have a visual of what the subconscious is doing. For people who are into psychology, you might think of the sub subconscious as sort of a, a network or a matrix of your experiences that you've assigned meaning to. And that subconscious is working to drive data up that ladder into your conscious brain all the time. And so the purpose of the dots is to show that any data that comes our way that falls within that framework, that lower part of the ladder gets sent up the ladder. But any dots which are equal value in data that are outside the ladder don't go up the ladder because they don't register as true according to your subconscious. And so going up that ladder, they end up in our narrative. They become our narrative. So I touch the stove, it's hot. Okay, subconscious accepts that stove is hot, don't touch it. I touch the stove, it's cold. Oh, confusion sets in. And so we start this, um, it's actually really amazing. I wish we had you know more time. There'd be so much to go into, but um, there's so much data now, even when we talk about racism there's so much data making sense of racism at the age of an of an infant and because an infant is is the subconscious even at the stage of an infant is making patterns out of the data that we receive and so if an infant is raised in a particular um within a particular race the patterning there is i see this uh family these this these sets of people are making me safe anytime i cry 
and I need help. These people come to help me. And then a new person enters who is, does not look like their family and they're not sure anymore, not because they have any malintent, but because their subconscious is making sense of that patterning. So again, so much to explore there, but for the purposes of conflict and perception, we can all realize and maybe even take a little bit of relief out of the fact that we, just, we have a story. And that story has been designed to keep us safe based on our experiences from day one of our lives. And of course, it's there to serve us and to help us. And it did serve its purpose in the time. But if we want to have a different experience, we might need to look at what our story is telling us about our existing experience of reality so that we can deviate and change and make and make new decisions. Um, this is why we have trauma responses to things that seem rather benign. Because our our we it might mean we um, our body responds in a specific way even to something that is not really seeming to be a trigger, because our body is is a computer that's telling us what's safe and what's not safe twenty four hours a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I, I could go on for hours talking about this stuff. So let's talk a little bit about your work on emotional resilience. Mm -hmm. And uh, what can you tell our audience in a nutshell? <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose the short answer is when I started working in conflict and made it clear that I want to space an inner conflict, uh, the way to do that was to practice emotional resilience and to practice authentic communication. Um, so we can park authentic communication for a second, but to focus in on emotional resilience, uh, you need it's like a prerequisite to work on inner conflict. Because emotional resilience means to be with your emotions without being in conflict with them, which is to just start taking that audit of your of your story and to understand, okay, how did this get here? Validate that experience. This is what I'm feeling right now. Not to change anything about it, but to be curious. And I think it's important to say that judgment and curiosity cannot live in the same space. It's impossible for them to live in the same space. So being curious, which is to practice emotional resilience is the gateway to to changing our story, which is to work with inner conflict. So you've touched on my one of my big words, which is curiosity. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think curiosity is one of the most important leadership traits, if not the most mm -hmm. important one. Can mm -hmm. you expand a little bit on how curiosity leads to emotional resilience and how that mm -hmm. process works? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the better way to explain that is to just have you sit in on one of my therapy sessions. <laughs> my therapist, you know, she's so good at it. I, I think every therapist should be um, to just be able to ask, to create a safe space, like for you, for you to feel safe enough to see a response that your nervous system is having, which the nervous system is our story. The nervous system is our supercomputer. And to see a response that the nervous system of, is having about an experience that you're observing or having yourself and to just notice. I think one thing that's important about being curious is you don't have to ask necessarily. It's just observing, noticing, observing, um, not even wondering. And I, I know that sounds like a kind of a radical thing to say for a course that's based on intellect, but you don't have to. Like It's just to observe. Um, and to observe allows the data to fill itself in that you wouldn't have had access to before, because again, we're all working with this ladder of inference. So we're just looking for our story. But pure curiosity is just observing and not making it mean anything. Are you talking about observing self? Like, Because yep. I mean, I think it's enormous value to have that curiosity, observe, 
and inquire of others too. And I think it helps in a conflict situation too. But yes. And and so to add to that, yes. So to, I think when we're focusing on the inner conflict space, of course, it's really of self, but always um, the work done on appreciative inquiry is amazing. Um, anywhere where we can expand our curiosity and and, and Jervis Bush, too, does a lot of work on curiosity, uh, specifically working within organizations. And and I think it's just radical what we can do with it. So I think we'll hit a quick pause on the conversation. So you can listen to Module 1 of Conflict Management from the Inside Out with our instructor, Erica Franken. Stop humming that song. I can hum if I want to. I know you can. I'm asking you to stop. Well, if you're asking, then I'll stop. Thank you. Could you not smile like that? Now you're asking me to mask my emotions because of how it makes you feel? That I will not do. Seriously. Stop humming! Okay? I'm going to get a slice. Do you think these two are in a conflict? I think they might be. Conflict shows up in so many different ways. In fact, I find it so interesting that I turned conflict into a career. We can't touch conflict. It's not always tangible per se, but we all seem to have an experience with it. Some of us know when we're in it, and some of us seem confused about what's going on. So what is conflict? What gives conflict life? Where does our energy go when we're in it? What do our emotions tell us about our experience and what we can do about it? It's been said that conflict can be transformational, but we can get stuck in it too. So what do we do with it? And how do we begin? Most of us see ourselves in a positive light. But when conflict finds its way into our experience, we can become lesser versions of ourselves, showing up and acting in ways that challenge those sandbox rules we lived by in kindergarten. I've noticed this in others and in myself over the years and have always wondered, what would it look like to use difference differently? My name is Erica Franken, and I'm the founder of Us Underneath, a practice in conflict management that specializes in inner conflict. I believe that there is an us underneath how we show up when we react, and that this us wants to be seen and to speak. I work with organizations and individuals to build capacity. I help others learn about who they are, to resolve their inner conflicts, communicate with authenticity, and create purpose-led dialogues. Ultimately, I help others restore much of what we already know about coherence and collaboration. What I continue to learn about doing this work is that we get to choose to remember what we already know when big emotions take over. It's just a matter of returning back to it when it serves us the most. Throughout this course, we'll be exploring the inner machinery of conflict and how we can master it to optimize our experiences and create new realities to live by. I've drawn on essentials of the conflict experience to offer insights from leading research and experts in the field. This course is interdisciplinary. It weaves research from practical application, 
in the areas of organizational development, change, mindfulness, law, human resources, neuroscience, coaching, leadership, and of course, conflict management. My intention with this course is to offer practical tools and pearls of wisdom that you can apply immediately after listening to each module. So let's not spare any more time and get started. In this first module, we'll be covering the anatomy of conflict. We'll review some of the fundamental definitions. We'll learn about what happens to our bodies in conflict and the power of perception in our experiences. The first word that comes to mind when I think of conflict is resolution. The first words I think of when I hear the word conflict are negotiation, uh, meeting, headbutting, contention, opposition. I think the first words that come to mind, like most people, are negative. So destructive, harmful, uh, strife, bitterness, competition. For me, it would be the thought of a struggle uh, between two entities or a difference of opinion. Which one of these responses do you relate with the most? Or perhaps you didn't hear one that sits with you. I encourage you to think of your own definition of conflict now. Whatever comes to mind is the most natural. I asked Bryn Hamilton to help us understand what conflict is from a professional perspective. Bryn is an associate faculty member at Royal Roads University in Victoria, Canada, and she's actively conducting applied research in the fields of conflict management, leadership, and workplace health and safety. Conflict is defined as a disagreement related to perceived or real incompatible goals and an interdependent relationship interfering with the achievement of these goals. And so the important part that this definition highlights is that conflict can either be real or perceived. If we are in a conflict where both of us agree and it's tangible, then it's a real conflict. But sometimes we're in a relationship or in an interaction where one person perceives that there's a conflict. And even though it's not a real conflict to the other person, it then becomes a conflict because one person's perception is that there is some type of um, disagreement or incompatibility between the goals of the two parties. So that's one of the definitions that I, I like about conflict because it highlights that perception piece. And then the second one is a little bit more um, casual in nature, but I think it really highlights the crux of the matter with conflict. And, and it is um, from Jennifer Beer and Carolyn Packard. And uh, here it goes. Conflict is not just a set of problems and differences. It's an emotional and social experience. Becoming absorbed in a conflict can affect a person's mind, their wallet, their body, their heart, their relationships, and their sense of self. Interesting. These two definitions highlight how complex the nature of conflict is and how far-reaching it can be, too. Lewis's definition outlines the mechanics of conflict, how it arises when it becomes one, even if only from our perspective, and that a degree of incompatibility is at least one of the byproducts of conflict. From an alternative perspective, Beer and Packard's definition harmonizes with it by underlining the experiential nature of conflict and how invasive it can be in so many areas of our life. With such a broad scope, it can be difficult to know when we're in conflict and when we're not. So how do we know? Take a scan of your own life and ask yourself, where am I noticing a difference between reality 
and my expectations. Wherever these gaps exist, we expose ourselves to more than we might even realize. Our bodies are also having an experience of their own in conflict. And sometimes they're making the decisions for us. Bryn shares more on what happens to our bodies during conflict. If conflict isn't dealt with, much like if our anger isn't uh, unpacked and dealt with, it can have negative effects on our physical body. Certainly it can erode relationships, which is outside of our physical body, but it also erodes the relationship that I think that we have with ourselves. It creates stress and some other physical manifestations, headaches, indigestion, uh, problems sleeping, problems eating. Our body moves through this anger mountain, let's call it, where we really are experiencing all of these uh, physical responses that are going to allow us to take action in some way, shape or form. And that impacts our judgment negatively. So our ability to critical think is significantly lessened and you actually can't sustain that level of energy for more than a couple of minutes. Imagine using your cell phone to check Facebook, stocks, or maybe even your calendar for the weekend. And all of a sudden, the battery in your phone reroutes exclusively to your emergency app. Now, the only thing you can do is call for help. 911, what's your emergency? No Facebook, no stocks, no checking in on weekend plans. Just emergency. This is your body on what some of us know as the amygdala hijack. The amygdala is a collection of nuclei found deep within the temporal lobe. The term amygdala comes from the Latin and translates to almond, because one of the most prominent nuclei of the amygdala has an almond-like shape. The amygdala is recognized as a component of the limbic system and is thought to play important roles in emotion and behavior. It is best known for its role in the processing of fear. During a hijack, your amygdala is the CEO of your brain, calling all the shots. Likely one of three. Flight, fight, or freeze, or perhaps any combination of those three. The other functions of your brain are considered non-essential. Because you've detected a threat, think about it. Would you stop and chat with your neighbor if you're being chased at gunpoint? No, you're triaging a bigger priority. The amygdala is in charge right now, and your body is taking orders to keep you quote-unquote safe. In this process, you actually have an altered chemical state, and it can take up to a full 48 hours to restore. Once we return to ground, we often have a new perspective of something we or someone else said after releasing from an amygdala hijack. Have you ever felt differently about how you showed up in conflict? After just one night's sleep? or even a walk? Restoring your body to its natural state after an amygdala hijack is like taking the filter off of a photo and looking at it in its original form. You now have access to thoughts that aren't informed by fear. You can see everything, just like an original photo. This tells us then that our opportunity in conflict is to work with stories, to recognize how we use them, what they tell us, how they inform our perspectives, and what we can do to evolve ourselves in the meantime. I'll tell you a story about a personal experience I had with this very process. In fact, 
it has a place in every module for this course. Not surprising, I'm sure. I was in a role years ago where I was working my way up to a manager's position. I was already responsible for the duties of a manager, but as a young professional with little experience, it was deemed appropriate that I was supervisor until I proved myself. From the beginning of my role as supervisor, my promotion to manager was a continued point of discussion. My CEO and I would regularly meet to discuss the steps required of me to achieve the promotion. A year into my role, I was eager to know what he was thinking. It was about this time that I was to be promoted, and I had done everything that was asked of me, including doubling the revenue for my department, finishing a master's degree, and taking a management course. I checked in with him a couple of times, with no luck, and eventually decided to park it until he got back to me. I didn't want to bother him, and I trusted that he was giving my progression some thought as we discussed. This person pegged himself as my mentor, someone who was guiding me to share his leadership style. I was okay to wait. I trusted and respected his judgment. It was a surprise when he called me into his office and sat me down to tell me that I wasn't ready for the title. Fighting tears, I asked why he felt this way. His first response came in the form of a question, asking me what the board would think. He then offered that I don't have a PhD, that I haven't shown enough leadership in my role, and that I would no longer report to him, instead, to someone who was previously a peer of mine. Slipping through my own professional diplomacy, I was in tears for the rest of the conversation. I cannot tell you what he said after that. This story highlights the learnings of this module. A conflict exists wherever there is a difference between reality and expectations. When there is, our bodies are at risk for going into an amygdala hijack. The more we're threatened, the more our bodies prepare and respond to our threat, whether it's real or perceived. Coming down from our heightened state, we start to see things more as they are, more than fear would have us believe. Our perception, then, is the storyteller of our experience, and arguably, the gateway to our emotional well-being. In the next module, we'll take a deeper dive into the stories we tell ourselves and how we can use them to change our experience. Are you still doing research, Erica? I've moved into the space of psychotherapy. Uh, I, I realized as I was working in conflict that I... I couldn't go as far as I wanted to go with just curiosity, if that's fair to say, within the conflict space. So um, I'm working on another degree now in uh, counseling psychology. And, and I'm also getting a certificate at, to be a somatic experiencing practitioner. I'm completing that right now. Um, and both of those are, to your point earlier, Russell, just really sitting in the space of curiosity. And what is biopsychosocial yeah. nature of conflict? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's really uh, if anyone knows the work of Gabor Mate or Bruce Lipton or Joe Dispenza, that's what it is. Uh, it's looking at the intersectionality between our biology, our sociology, and our psychology. Uh, so how they talk to each other, and and particularly, I'm interested in how conflict fills itself into that. So 
uh, one research focus that I had for a short while, unfortunately, I had to put it aside while I started my degree, but there's a um, syndrome called resignation syndrome, and it's observed in uh, Syrian refugee children in uh, Sweden. And they have come down with something that presents like a coma, uh, but it's not medically a coma, and they call it resignation syndrome. And so it, it looks like a coma, but ultimately they're sleeping for months, and we don't know why. And the assumption is that they've just come from a very traumatic experience and they've landed in this you know, beautiful country, Sweden, where they are quote unquote safe, but their body doesn't feel that way. And so there's a lot of curiosity around this and how does this come to be and how do we resolve this? And I think there's a space for the biopsychosocial framework to start to address that using using its different modalities. But um, that remains a point of interest for me. But like I said, I, with working on this and other masters, I'm having to be more intentional with my time. And Dr. Mate also does a lot of childhood trauma work mm -hmm. as well. So yes, yeah, very fascinating. Okay, so I've got one last question. We've mm -hmm. got a few minutes left. Um, what is one top like realization or um, new understanding of conflict that you've had in the past, I mean, through COVID perhaps even, and uh, just in the past three years since you created your course, what's one of your top things you've realized or new learning or anything like that? I don't know if I can call it new learning. I'll call it deeper learning. Deeper, um, yeah, that's good. Because it's not that I didn't know this, but it's it's just realizing that no matter how much you quote unquote know about the subject, it doesn't absolve you of the experience of it. Exactly. So we all have, you know, our story and that's our challenge, battle, opportunity, journey, whatever you want to call it. Um, and yeah, there's no shortcut. So so we all have that path to walk, no matter how much you know, how, much, how many textbooks you've read. <laughs> so is there something specific that you've realized yeah. or in your deeper learning or that you've kind of like an aha thing? Well, the biopsychosocial, for sure. I mean, there's a reason I got into it, which is because I had my own uh, experience during COVID of having mysterious pain in my in my lower legs that I couldn't make sense of for a year and a half. And I actually couldn't walk um, oh, wow. for a year and a half. Like I really struggled and I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't understand it. Uh, of course, there was, you know, some personal stuff that was going on that you could have attributed it to. But really nothing that would make sense of what I was experiencing. I was in extreme pain and I had to go sort of blindly down this path, even though I had the degree and I had the the stuff on paper, I had to walk my own path as well and figure it out. And I couldn't go the, the Western medical route because I had seen over 28 doctors and I didn't have any answers from them. Um, they were very kind and trying to help me, but they just, the modalities of the Western medical system weren't working. And so I had to use a different path and I'm pain-free now. Um, but it wasn't, it was difficult. And, um, but it, it was such a gift too, because I feel like I get to work with this work in a more intimate way because of it. I just wanted to add how much I appreciate all your insight, Erica, just listening to you. My brain is just moving very quickly to all the different things that you're talking about. And I'm, yeah, just really appreciate your wisdom and your intellect and your curiosity, I guess, at the end of the day, right? Continuing to move forward um, is inspiring. Thank you. Okay. okay. Take care. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye. 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 
great to have uh, you laughing over me. Sorry. <laughs>